Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. This week, our guests are Jack Cornfield and Anne Lamott. Cornfield is the founder of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, and he was one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practices to the West. He's taught meditation and Buddhist philosophy all over the world. Anne Lamott is known for frank and deeply personal writings on motherhood, alcoholism, creativity, and faith. On February 15, 2022, the two friends talked about navigating uncertain times and finding compassion for others, even those who hurt us. Join us now for a conversation with Jack Cornfield and Anne Lamott. I was sitting here looking at the screen and the camera and thinking about you all and grateful that we get to be together. So I'm Jack and this is Annie, in case you didn't figure that out. And I was asked by City Arts and Lectures if I would do a a program, especially they were interested in how do we deal with this time and the ending of these two years or more of the pandemic and some of the dispirited, depressive qualities that people have had or anxiety or things like that. How do we manage with everything that's going on in the world and what actually allows us um, to live with a kind of beauty and well-being and so we made our themes around that in whatever way we could to stay present and speak about compassion, love, community, and forgiveness. And um, with that, uh, what do you know about love, my dear? What do you? Uh, well, do you I just want to wanted start? to. I wanted just to start by saying um, what you touched on that it's been a very strange two years, and it's been a very strange five years, I'm not going to name names, but it's been a tricky time to try to be fully alive and human here on this funny blue marble. And when we were, when we were in shutdown, I, I really wanted someone to hand me a formula for being invigorated and, and curious instead of worried and shut down. And I wanted to be able to feel, feel wonder and, and, uh, you know, and, and really being here instead of just, you know, closing up like a fiddlehead fern because it was just so strange and difficult. And I wanted to be able to stay deeply connected to everything I love about life, which is you, you and my, my people and, and nature and the really real, which is what the ancient Greeks called God. But no one seemed to have a formula. And then we talked a lot. And it, it turned out we had this kind of battered old toolbox, and in it we had these these tools, and they have seen us through. I remember you telling me 20 years ago when, well, I think it was 12 years ago when Sam had a baby when he was 19, and you said we are always held, and it doesn't always feel like that, or, and we can't always see what it is that's holding us, but we're always held. So we want to talk about, as you said, community, service, forgiveness, love. And so let's start with love, which is probably the most overused word ever. But we know of love that it's this affection and caring and uh, it's shelter. 
and it's a binding agent like eggs in a recipe. I teach my Sunday school kids what the Bible says, which is that God is love and only love entirely, like our dogs have for us. It's it's um, just kind of a pathetic love. It's a pathetic feeling of of affection. It's it's immersive. It's like the mom cat has for her kittens. The uh, great Jesuit. Um, Henry Nowen's teacher who started Arch for the Developmentally Disabled, where Henry Nowen lived for 20 years, said to love someone is to reveal their beauty to themselves. So I teach my kids that that God is only these things, these caring, tender-hearted things, that God is in fact baffled by what isn't love, that God doesn't have the app for non-love, which, you know, and, and God is a little better at this than I am. My love tends to be a little fraught and conditional, but um, but the love of my closest people um, helps me to be my very truest self. It helps me feel safe in these times, in whatever chaos or weirdness life throws at me, and it helps me not get stuck in my personality and the curated persona, but instead I can move into the marigold of me that I am trying to bloom one day at a time. So, Jack, what do you know of love? Oh, a beautiful question. Um, and especially for this time, but probably for all time, because it's actually the only game in town. You know, when a baby's born, the first thing you do, you hold this baby and you love it. Mm-hmm. And when somebody dies at the end of life and you get to hold their hand and you get that, extraordinary moment of being with them when their spirit departs their body and all that there is is love at that point Mm -hmm. and it turns out that between those two what else is there but love Mm -hmm. that's that's the game Mm -hmm. now i was going to say a couple of baby things when i told you when sam was 19 that he was going to be a father you just picked me up and you drove me over to Comforts, and you bought me six cupcakes, which were all they had left. And I very slowly ate the frosting off of all of them. And so sometimes love looks like frosting. Love might look like a tangerine that we share. It might be a physical object. And then also when I first started being at City Arts and Lectures, which is 30 years ago, Sidney Goldstein, the founder and, and our our mentor in these evenings um, used to babysit Sam and was just so excited to be with him instead of all these fancy intellectual types. So she'd be in the green room with Sam for years with Legos and, and food. Food looks like love a lot. And then the last time I was here with you, four years ago, Jax was a little boy, my grandson, and he and Sydney were still in the green room eating candy and cookies together and doing Legos. And that is what love looks like to me. Mm-hmm. Love is also a root system. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, what we're learning about trees, that they're in communication underground, that we don't see it, but that they're all connected. There's not a tree with one root that is kind of greedy, gravelly, trying to get all the nutrients it can, all the sugar water it needs to grow, but that is communicating with the other roots and that it, one root may be a little sick and the other roots, the other trees send some of their sugar water to that tree until it's strong again. So, you know, love is a root system and... um my closest people speak tree. You speak tree. You and I can sit down and speak tree together. 
And and also I think that love is the radio station that is always playing. I think we just are love. We're here for love. We're here. We're love in expression. We're there's an old story we tell my Sunday school kids, or I tell them of a, a very scared little girl who can't fall asleep one night, and she keeps calling out for her mom, and her mom comes in and says, you're here, God's here, Jesus is here, you're safe, I'm right next door, go to sleep. This goes on and on for three or four minutes, but I'll spare you. And um, finally, the, the girl calls out for her mom, I'm so scared, and the mom comes in and says, honey, God is here with you, right here on the bed, and the little girl says, I need someone with skin on. And so I think for God with skin on, with soft, warm skin and fur. Yeah, her and mama. Yeah. So let's talk about it in another way. When I have done in the past, I've done wedding ceremonies for people. And one of the things that I do in the wedding ceremony, all kinds of beautiful rituals. And, you know, it's such a magic time. And I want people to pause and feel the circle of people who are beaming love to them. And then when I start to talk to the couple, I'll say, you know, one of the things that I need to know from you um, is related to the stickers that you see in used car lots. Mm. Because you go to the used car lot and they're selling a car and then in the window is a sticker that says, as is, you know, because <laughs> it's used. And, uh-huh. and I say, so would you look at him, you know, or would you look at her or look at them, whoever it is, and tell me, do you take them as is? Do you love them as is? Because mm-hmm. that is going to be part of the the glue or the root system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think about the fact that I spent a lot of time with my dear, beloved friend, teacher, colleague Ramdas in the last years of his life. Mm-hmm. You were there a bit too, Annie. Mm-hmm. And as, as he grew older, there he was in a wheelchair, um, half paralyzed, aphasia, trouble speaking, a lot of infections and physical pain. And he became more and more loving. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm not this body. You're not your body, by the way. You need to take care of it. It's a beautiful vehicle, but that's not who you are. You are a spirit born into this body. Mm-hmm. And then he would gaze. And as he got, you know, in the last years of his life, he would say, I love everything. Mm-hmm. I love you, and I love you. And then you'd look at his altar, and there would be all these pictures of, you know, Mother Mary and uh, Mother Teresa and his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and Krishna and Shiva and and uh, Hanuman and um, every god you'd name and all kinds of great saints and sages. And in the middle, there would be Dick Cheney and, <laughs> and Donald Trump and Donald Rumsfeld. They sort of took turns <laughs> on the altar, moving aside Mother Teresa and he would look at he'd say, "I love them too. I love, I love the, the 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 gray wall paint behind it that needs to be repainted. I love mm-hmm. everything." Mm-hmm. And in his last teaching, a few months before he died, we were on a retreat, and people came by him at the end to receive a gift of a little wrist mala of beads, um, and he was too weak to even put it in their hand. Somebody else put it in their hands, he blessed them. But he gazed at them, and he gazed at them with a gaze that's called in India the glance of mercy, because it had such purity in it. Mm -hmm. He just looked at them and enveloped them in a sense of love, 
that they were worthy, that you, those of you who are listening, you can envision this of being seen in that way, your secret beauty mm-hmm. in some way. And we struggle and we have our minds and our judgments. Thank you for trying to take care of me. You can say mm-hmm. to your mind, I'm actually okay right now. Mm-hmm. And in the moment that you're seen or that you let yourself take a deep breath and allow that sense of beauty that you are, that you were from the beginning, mm-hmm. be held, love appears. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, you know, to all of you who are listening, one of the big things we've learned over these years in teaching meditation and doing metta and loving kindness practice is that what's hard for people actually is self-compassion mm-hmm. and self-love. Okay, I can love others and I can build that and it's a, it's a state of consciousness that you can invite. It's always there for you and you can shift to it. Mm-hmm. But then to see your eyes, yourself through the eyes of the people that care about you most, mm-hmm. who, what would they want for you? And you start to realize, oh, maybe I could also let that in. That my full humanity, as is, <laughs> that I, in a sense, that I accept all of that to be myself mm-hmm. with love. Yeah. Well, one thing I live by, um, one thing that really was an important tool for me during COVID college was um, the beautiful line of William Blake's that we are here to learn to endure the beams of love. And that's so much what you were just talking about, that we're good at. Um, taking care of and and looking at people. There's a gospel song we say, sing that says, he looked beyond my needs. He looked beyond my faults and saw my needs. And in COVID college, we were so often able to see people's needs and respond to, to them. But it's so hard for me when people are responding to my emptiness or my fearfulness and are just being this kind of ham radio of love that have reached my ham radio and are pouring into me. And so to learn to endure the beams of love is kind of a lifetime project, you know. And um, I do the best I can one day at a time, and some days are just too long. <laughs> There's just no other way to cut it. And and I feel kind of shut down and um, cringy. And then somebody tricks me, and the love warms me up, and I turn towards that love again like a sunflower. Well, Hafez says that, the poet says that fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. Oh, God, that's wonderful. And, and here we are, and the media and the state of the world is also one of fear-mongering. As mm-hmm. uh, Mencken, a commentator 100 years ago, H.L. Mencken said, the whole aim of politics is to keep the populace alarmed by an endless series of fears and hobgoblins, many of them imaginary. Yeah. And, then, and then people will say, well, wait, what about, what about climate change? What about, you know, the next variant? What about the, the real need for racial justice and economic justice and all these things? Everything is true. And yet, listen, we've been through this before for a hundred, for a thousand generations, your ancestors did it. They lived through pandemics. They lived through earthquakes and typhoons. We know how to do this. And the mm-hmm. way that we do it, actually, 
is we do it together. Mm -hmm. We do it with a certain care and trust. And while those things are true, in the course of these 10 or 15 minutes that we've been together here, there have been a billion acts of someone making scrambled eggs or rice gruel and putting them on the table for their child, Mm -hmm. someone, you know, letting the car in front of them in so that they can have space in that lane, um, of someone just smiling at the cashier when they go through, you know, go, go out of the market, a billion X every five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then we say, mm-hmm. how are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. We know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And as you say, Annie, it's a day at a time. Mm-hmm. It's a person at a time. Mm-hmm. It's a moment at a time, and then we catch it from one another. Mm-hmm. It's like it's contagious, more mm-hmm. contagious mm-hmm. than Omicron, mm-hmm. that love. Mm-hmm. It's it a is. beautiful contagion. It is. So love leads us to compassion, which is a very Buddhisty sort of theme, and I would love if, if you could just riff on compassion for a moment. Well, I remember when the Dalai Lama first came to visit our center in Massachusetts at Insight Meditation Society. We were all excited, and it was like the late 70s, his first visit to the U.S., I think. And so a number of the staff and teachers were out on these the portico and these steps in front of this big building waiting for him, and his car pulled up. And he walked up the steps and looked around at us, and at the back of this group of maybe 30 people was my dear, beloved friend Sharon Salzberg and colleague, And she had fallen, sprained her ankle, so she was on crutches with her ankle all taped up. He looked at the group, and then he saw her. He immediately walked over there and said, oh, my dear, what happened to you? (laughs) And it was the most kind of absolutely simple and exquisite moment to say, all right, we're in this together. We've got this human body and this human incarnation, which isn't easy. We struggle in it. And he gazed around like the bodhisattva of compassion and said, mm-hmm. oh, who can I bring my tenderness to? How mm-hmm. can I hold this? Mm-hmm. That's when love sees the difficulty, the struggle of another in some way, the heart turns to compassion. Mm-hmm. It's called the quivering of the heart. And when it does happen, all of a sudden, things that didn't seem possible change. And I think of my dear friend, um, Sananda, who was this Cambodian Gandhi and nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and his family was killed, his village was, was burned and he, for 15 years, he led people on foot back to their villages. He said, you can't ride a bus. You can't, you know, get in the back of a pickup. You have to reclaim your land with your heart and in the front of the line he would ring this bell And he'd chant, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And after all that had happened to him, he just looked with the eyes of compassion and said, we're in this together. What world do we want to create now? And you could feel it was like the slipstream. You were behind him and everyone was chanting. And I kind of want us to do that now and go through the streets and instead of blocking the bridges for other reasons, let us say. Let's go and, you know, um, let ourselves follow. Hatred never ends by hatred, but Mm -hmm. by love alone is healed. So Mm -hmm. that compassion and love, somehow they come together in that beautiful way. Mm -hmm. 
a few weeks ago, I texted you because I was feeling unloved of which God does not have an app, but I do. And I was just having feelings that were so miserable, and I asked you to help me with those. And you wrote something. I wanted to read it here because I really loved it. You wrote, Feelings are just feelings. Thoughts are just thoughts. They arise on their own due to certain conditions. Suffering arises when we attach to the feelings. If someone does something awful to us, defames us, steals from us, blames us, hurts us, hurts those we care for, the more we take the, this personally, the more we will suffer. If we see it all with compassion, we will see people's ignorance and grasping, their fear and pain and attachment without it sticking to us. However, because we are oh, so human, we may also feel hurt for a time, but we can hold this compassion, this hurt too with compassion rather than believing it or taking it too personally. Laugh at the drama and not suffer much. Of course, sometimes it's necessary to protect ourselves too. Gradually, they say, we can see praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow arise with loving awareness with re- and rest in a compassionate and wise heart. At least this is what Ramdas said he had learned. And on a lucky day, <laughs> I might even feel a tiny bit of it possible for a foolish ex-monk like myself. <sighs> yeah. So, um, you know, the most compassionate thing in the Christian con- um, tradition is that Jesus washes Judas's feet. And um, this just blows my mind. Although I have studied it and loved this image for so long that about 10 years ago I, would re- I realized I would wash Dick Cheney's feet and I realized he would wash mine because that's the deal we made. <laughs> we made a deal to, be, um, to take care of God's children for God, knowing that we are always taken care of. But he, Jude, uh, Jesus looks at Judas, who has betrayed him, and he knows what suffering Judas is experiencing. It tells us in the Bible, it, 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 it's the Last Supper, and um, if you count noses, it says Jesus washes everybody's feet there, and he sees it, that Jesus, that Judas is just a destroyed being. He has no home now because he has no home in love. And I wondered if you could just say briefly something about those teenage nuns you've told me about in the Chinese prisons who, um, maybe I can just tell you. Um, what I re- the way I remember it was um, these nuns, these Buddhist nuns, girls really, who had been locked up for their beliefs and they were praying for their jailers because they knew how stricken and alone and awful the jailers must feel all of the time. Yeah, the Dalai Lama brought a couple of these young nuns to meet with a whole group of people who had been doing meditation practice in prisons and to come out to meet with the Dalai Lama and the nuns came along and the the other folks who'd been in you know Oregon State or Texas State Prison for 20 or 30 years after they listened to the nuns these young girls say yeah electric shock torture you know, all because we wanted to say our prayers out loud mm-hmm. what did we what did we do what could we do we prayed for the jailers mm-hmm. that they were so caught Mm-hmm. And you could feel the whole room soften 
And then they said, oh, we've seen courage, but we've never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that we actually have the capacity to see those around us, their, their humanness, their full humanness with a tender heart, with mm-hmm. the eyes of compassion, mm-hmm. and that you have born into you the great heart of compassion. It's there mm-hmm. in you. Little children have it. When they see somebody crying, you know, all the research, but you don't need research. You just need to be around them. They feel that we resonate together. So what it is is trusting your compassionate heart, that you have mm-hmm. this in you, and knowing that it's possible to hold yourself and then see the incarnation, the mystery of that person with their suffering and their joys and their fears, and wow, look at that life, their struggles, and then their beauty that they're getting through it somehow in whatever way they have, they can, and all of a sudden, the compassion op- opens the gateway to love. Mm-hmm. Which brings us sort of naturally to presence, which we'd wanted to talk about because in uh, we don't have a shot at that, at uh, moving into compassion and, and doing the sacrament of ploppage down into the very heart of, of divine, compassionate love without the presence. If we're tripping it. I heard a preacher in the East Bay in Berkeley, in Oakland, say once the twenty-third Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. But she said, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not trip." <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to find your own heart and anyone else's heart when you're tripping. And so, presence is really kind of a more of a. It's not really we don't really deal with it in Christian Christianity. You don't have to really do it. Sure, you do. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I love what Thich Nhat Hanh said that our appointment with life is in is the present, and yet it's very hard for some of us. So I remember when Thich Nhat Hanh visited Spirit Rock here in Marin County, and we had two thousand people. He came several times. We had two thousand people on the hillside and a platform for him, and some monks and nuns were there leading a meditation, some of his community, and then it was time for Thich Nhat Hanh to come. And you could see from the hillside behind the platform this road that led to it. Thich Nhat Hanh came from where he was resting, and he walked down that road with such attention to each step. He called walking meditation kissing the earth with the sole of your foot. And then he would mm. kiss the earth with the other. Mm. And he walked with such a sense of presence mm. that the whole hillside went, oh, yeah, mm. this is what it's like just to be here in this moment. Nowhere else, just to be here. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to Houston Smith, who was this remarkable, you know, spiritual um, author, professor, guide, all kinds of things. And he'd suffered a tremendous loss when his one of his grandchildren, a granddaughter, who was on a sailing trip, had gotten murdered. And he was really close to her, and he was in tremendous grief. And we talked about it afterward, and he said people sent him messages and brought food and did all the things that we do because we care for each other. Mm-hmm. In a way, our grief is really because we love so deeply. Mm-hmm said the thing that was most helpful was that down the street where he lived was a 18 or 19-year-old young Native American man. He said, and he used to come over 
most every day and take a seat next to me and not say anything. Mm. Just sit. And he said somehow the quality of his presence, of just being there as he, as I, Houston, went through everything, just to have that loving witness, Mm -hmm. that heart. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, it's not like we have to fix anybody. And often we don't have to fix ourselves. thank you, maybe most of the time. Mm -hmm. But we can be present. And in that presence, it's a gift. It's a gift to allow that, you know, the communion of the tree roots. We have it. We have it even as you gaze at Annie and me. We have it all the time with one another. Mm -hmm. And just to take the time to quiet and do so. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a Christian story we tell our kids of... um a woman who, whose next-door neighbor, very, very old man, had lost his wife, and he just sat um, on his porch every day weeping, and, um, and her little boy went across the street and just sat there, and the mother could see that no, neither of them were saying a word, and the little boy, six or seven, just sat there with him, and when he came home, she said, what were you doing? And she said, he said, I thought it might help if I just sat and felt really sad with him. Mm. Yeah. Neil says, this is back to compassion, that love is what arises in the... Compassion is the love that arises in the presence of suffering. Yes. And in the pre- in presence, I mean, that's why they call it the present, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's the gift. It's why we're here, is the, is the presence of, of, uh, of each breath and of, of stepping outside and... And, and letting your mouth drop open because the daffodils are blooming. And, um, they are in, they in your are front yard. In I our see front them. yard, Neil yeah. planted them, and, and you don't walk past them and go, oh, they're, they're medium daffodils this year. You know, he's done better. You walk by them and you go, oh my God. And then you want to pull people over to sit, sit and look at the daffodils with you. And, or you look up like Trudy taking pictures of the moon tonight. And everybody that trooped over to see Sam and Risa Studios, Square One Studios, if you want to get in touch, that every single person stopped for a moment to gaze up at the moon. And everybody said, oh, God, or oh, wow, or oh, man, and was very quiet for a moment in beauty, in shimmering beauty. Whereas a lot of the time, the reason that presence can be so hard is we have our to-do lists. And, and, and in former lives, we were... Busy, important people, and we were, of course, trying to save the world, and we had six or seven plates spinning at any given time, and thank you, Jesus, I'm not able to do that anymore, but um, I always had my writing students cross two things off their to-do list every single day so that they could sit quietly and write, probably badly, and it, you know, herky-jerky and many steps backwards and a few lurches and flails forward. But um, it's those lists of things that we probably we think we ought to do, like the white rabbit. And instead, people stop and stare up at the moon and they say, wow, which is the third great prayer. Wow is the prayer, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Wow is the third great prayer. Um, Neil, I wrote about this in some book or other, but Neil and I were walking one morning from here, and he had a little tiny espresso cup with him. That he just made himself a cup of espresso, probably his very favorite taste of all. And about five minutes later, he said, 
I tasted the first sip, and I didn't taste another drop of it. Because we've been talking, because there's stuff happening in the neighborhood, or because the roots have broken the sidewalk up uh, uh, in front of your neighbor's house, and they should probably get that fixed because we're older and we may fall and break our hips. And so you're thinking about all this stuff, whereas you're drinking the favorite thing that you're happy to wake up for. So um, anyway. um, I find the same thing. Um, and if I sit and meditate and just get myself quiet a little bit, it helps even for a little while. Then I go out, especially if I'm not in a hurry to get somewhere mm-hmm. or I'm not multitasking, which I have done a lot, you know, I'll do this mm-hmm. and I'll do that yeah. all at the same time. And then I remember Einstein said, at least according to Scientific America, American, if you can drive safely while kissing a girl, you're simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. <laughs> and I think, well, what's deserving of attention? You know, yeah. this moment, this moon, mm. this connection that we mm. have, um, this time to take a deeper breath mm-hmm. and settle. And yes, you have your measure of suffering and your struggles like we all do and mm-hmm. broken hearts and worries. But, uh, you know, when Hafez says that, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. Mm-hmm. You can take a breath, feel that the earth is moving around the sun and the galaxies are turning and the seasons are turning and human beings have done this for a very long time and you're part of something so magnificent and great mm-hmm. and you can be where you are. And One of the things that I love to teach in meditation these days is a kind of gratitude, which is to say, I'll have people, maybe we'll do it toward the end, we're going to do some questions for a little bit, and we'll do a short meditation, begin to feel what's going on in their body, what's going on in their heart, all the things you're carrying, the longing and love and fear and hate and excitement, and to each one say thank you. Thank you for trying to keep me safe to all those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Thank you to my heart for caring so much. I'm actually okay just now Mm -hmm. because all that's in the future. And if you can say thank you, you're not even trying to get rid of it. Thank you for all those judgments. I know you're trying to make me better. Thank Mm -hmm. you. I'm actually okay just here and now. Mm -hmm. And now. Mm -hmm. One thing I use as a tool um, to kind of spritz me back to the present as if by a plant mister, is that you'll often see me with a rubber band, a loose rubber band here um, around my wrist because when my older brother went to a smoking cessation clinic, they gave everybody rubber bands because when you're having a terrible craving for a cigarette, the craving tells you that the only way out is to smoke. And it's a lie. The craving will last five minutes whether you smoke or not. Um, and uh, it's like a contraction when you're the, in childbirth tells you it's never going away and it, it, you, it, you pass through it. But so when you, the got, people were having cravings, they were to snap the rubber band very gently and it, it's a, t- a tender pl- place on your skin and it's done with such love, not like might have been done to you when you were a child and you go, <gasps> you take a breath. Mm. And then you're kind of back in the now, you're back in the soft, tender part of the, the, your inner wrist. And then you can look around again. And, you know, we get to keep starting our 24 hours over and over and over again every time we remember that we get to. And so anything that I can do that reminds me that I'm here to be 
fully in the really real and to learn to endure the beams of love and to breathe, you know, and when I don't know what to do, to do left foot, right foot, left foot, breathe over and over and over again, then I'm home. But, um, but that, tr- that really, really works for me, the rubber band. And, um, but also another thing is that, you know, there's the unbearable lightness of being that was the title of Kundera's beautiful novel. And then there's also the kind of ploppy, murky world, um, that we see through a glass darkly, um, here a lot of the time. And it's in, in many ways safer for us because it's familiar. It's part of our childhood was, was to have a lot of care and responsibilities that were in, in you know, expectations. And expectations are, are resentments under construction, but people had expectations of us. We got expectations of ourselves. And all of these things were a kind of a ballast that kept us tethered to the earth. Whereas if you are pre- in presence, it's a little airier, it's a little floatier, and you might just float away like a balloon losing air. And I think that in to some degree, I um, trip and obsess to have the illusion of control, that if I'm thinking of if I can do ways to improve my life or myself or you, my favorite subject, you or who, whatever innocent bystander I can get to, it's it, it gives me a sense of control and it makes me feel safer because I have a project. And Neil reminds me constantly that the world is always organizing itself for my benefit all the time. But I forget that and I start trying to organize and fix and rescue and manage. And, uh, and it never works. You know, my help is really not helpful. But um, I remember when I went to India, um, I thought, boy, if I just had a clipboard and some post-its, I could get these people organized in a way that I think would be much more efficient for all concerned. <laughs> um, we have about 10 minutes till we take questions, and so let's just keep going. We wanted to talk about community as one of the most profound um, um, uh, resources available during both during COVID college and during any hard times so when we're not sure that God or life are going to help find a way out of no way. And um, Frederick Beekner, who's, uh, I think, the most important living Christian theologian said, you can survive on your own, you can grow strong on your own, you can prevail on your own, but you cannot become human on your own. And uh, and Sam said a long time ago to me and Reese that um, um, it's so romantic to be the lone wolf or to think of all the lone wolves in history and in, certainly in literature, but it's actually um, the lone wolf is the most vulnerable of anybody in the wolf pack. And that you need a pack to be safe. You need what Martin Luther King called the beloved community and the, um, in recovery and, uh, in 12 step recovery, people say that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. Mm. And so, um, and is, does, is, doesn't the word sangha? Sangha means sangha. community. Yeah. Every tradition, satsang in the Hindu tradition and sangha in the Buddhist and in the Christian mm. and minion in the Jewish community. I think about my dear friend Maladoma Somme, a West African shaman and medicine man with a couple of PhDs on the side. Um, and we talked about this beautiful African story that when a woman decides to have a child, and we're talking about his people, the Dagara people, 
um, before doing that, she will go out and sit under a tree and wait to hear the song of the child that wants to be born within her. Mm. And when she hears the song, she goes back and teaches it to her lover and they make love and they sing the song together mm. to invite that child. And then when mm-hmm. the child's born, she teaches it to the midwives and the people. And the first thing that happens, a child gets born, <clears throat> maybe not whacked on the butt, but mm-hmm. instead invited by their, their song. And then as they grow up, if they, the village knows if they fall, they hear their song. When they get bar mitzvah or whatever they do in mm-hmm. that village, they get married, the two songs, until the end of life when that's the last thing they hear is their song. Oh. And I heard this story, and I thought, oh, I want to live in that kind of culture where we're known by our songs. Mm -hmm. And there's something, there's a thread in that of what community really means, that we see each other, that we see the uniqueness, Mm -hmm. that nobody could ever be like Annie Lamott. It just couldn't happen. (laughs) However great God or the universe is, there's only one, or Jack or whoever that we see the uniqueness and the particular song that's there and that we can honor that mm-hmm. or that we can feel it honored in ourselves mm-hmm. that no one has ever been like you and you have a gift to deliver you of a song that's your own. And when you do that, you start to feel the resonance with others. Oh, we are in this together. Mm-hmm. We're actually a chorus. Mm-hmm. We each add our, our piece to the music that makes our life. Mm-hmm. So community is so important, and that's where we learn. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, my favorite things, actually, which we'll get to, is the kind of questions and dialogue that happens, because when somebody's looking and opening, which is where those questions start, we're all looking and opening together, and then the mind gets interested and the heart softens, and we go, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, mm-hmm. me too. I could be in this. Let me mm-hmm. grow. Let me mm-hmm. learn. Mm-hmm. And so people sometimes haven't found their community yet, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit because one thing to do is to figure out who to serve because that's where you're going to get really help, really happy. You know, when I first got sober, um, this man said to me, I came in to recovery as a big shot, and the sober men helped me work my way up to servant. Mm. And that's really where the joy is. And so people, it's pretty easy to find a, 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 food, a food pantry or a, a lunchroom where they need people to help. And you don't have to believe in anything. It's like Woody Allen used to say before I turned on him that 90% of life was just showing up. You can get people groceries. Um, and... Um, once uh, the way that you find the way that you enter into a community is first of all you decide to you intend to maybe you go to spirit rock maybe you go to the community meditation there maybe you come to saint andrew maybe you come to um uh the the tai chi that the older people do in most parks most mornings and what you know what you do you say hello you know, a yeah. lot of things hello. just start with, hello. hello, say hello, and maybe somebody offers you a glass of water, so you say, thank you. You say hello and thank you, and you drink the water, and then you look back at the person who gave you the water, and you say, could you tell me a little bit about what you all are up to here and what you're about? And um, 
it's so profound. We worry. I think that if we become part of a community, we'll blend too much, you know, we'll disappear a little and get equalized. So after a lifetime of having been known to be really exceptional at this, you're, you're one of, you're, you're, you're a, a, a molecule in the body of God, but, and you're not so special and you, and you may feel very shy and you're milling around and you feel a little bit vulnerable. But um, instead of being lost, that's like sounds like like middle school dating in a dance. I know seventh <laughs> grade, but you say hello and you mill and you feel shiny, feel vulnerable because in vulnerability is where our our strength lies. But I can promise you, and I know Jack would make the same promise, is that people will say whether it's the tai chi on the lawn or or the meditation group or whatever they'll say, we're glad to see you. Please come back. And then you'll think, well, they're just kooky. They're crazy people. I don't have time for this anyway. And um, Or you think there's a cult and there's some sort of catch or they want your money. And they say, we're glad to see you. Please mm. come back. And then you start to think about, well, I, you know, I actually have work. I'm on a deadline. And they say, we're so glad to see you. Please come back. And then if you do keep coming back three or four times and you have the gift of desperation, which is a great acronym for God, you see that someone who is clearly there, you see someone else. And they're there for the first time. You've been there four times. And you go up to them and you say, we're glad you're here. Please come back. Mm. And that is the chain of community. And in coming back, you enter a new universe, a bigger universe where you get to do a kind of nautilus of the soul as you learn to accept other people, which leads to, of course, the miracle that more and more we begin to accept ourselves. So you're really talking about stepping out of a sense of isolation, which has happened all the more during the pandemic for people mm, and so forth, mm-hmm. and being vulnerable, being willing to say, all right, even so, let me try to connect. Let me find a way. Maybe there's a part of the world that I can reach and touch and mend or make a difference to, not for them even, but just for your own heart to say, oh yeah, this was a day that I also added that, that I did that piece. And it turns out that it's, it's, we have different dimensions of consciousness as if there were different channels. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can stay in the worried channel or what's going to happen to the world channel. But we also can direct our attention and our consciousness to a place of gratitude mm-hmm. and well-being and love, mm-hmm. and that invites this connection. Mm-hmm. I, I know I, I like to do my metta loving-kindness practice, and um, sometimes when I used to fly on a plane, um, remember those days prior, <laughs> anyway, I'd be there reading my book, or, you know, looking at a magazine or something kind of in my, as we are in my own little world and feeling separate. And then I'd look up and down the aisle and I'd do a little of the practice of loving kindness. And I'd look over there and I'd see, oh, may that old grandfather who's sitting there with his grandson in the seat next to him, may they be happy and safe and well. Mm-hmm. Then I'd see that, you know, young pierced and tattooed teenage girl over there, may she be happy and protected. She's somebody's daughter, somebody's mm-hmm. beloved, may she be well. And then I'd see this other person and I kind of go look around, not looking too weird. I mean, I look weird enough without kind of, you know, exaggerating it, not saying it out, but just wishing well, it would take me about three minutes. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I felt like 
I know these people. They're part of, you know, mm-hmm. and the plane would bounce and everybody would hold mm-hmm. on. And i go, okay, meta, meta, we're all in it together. Let's hold this mm-hmm. in love. Mm-hmm. And then when we land, everybody get their bag down. And I could say, I, I want to say bye. I love you all. Nice mm-hmm. to see you. Have a good, you know, whatever you're going to. This is possible for you, for me, that we have this channel of connection that invites us and all that it asks is that we take a breath and pause and then begin to deliberately practice the the quality of loving kindness and, and care. Mm-hmm. So. And then I, I was wondering if you brought that wonderful um, thing that that Scoop Nisker wrote um, during the I, 2016 I did, election, I do did, you? Because that's the big community. Yes, and this is like, here we are in the political times, and we know it. And this was for the last election from Scoop Nisker. He said, vote, vote, vote. Vote for the birds, the bugs, the reptiles, the rabbits, the trees, the grasses, the bison, the salmon. Vote for the whales and the elephants. Vote for the lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And for the fox who goes out on the town, oh town, oh. Vote for Kermit the Frog and for Big Bird. Vote for Ganesha and Hanuman and for all the beings who live in our myths and our poetry. Vote for peace and for the future. Vote for evolution and all the possibilities it holds. What an invitation. What an invitation. There's our politics for the night. There it is, yeah. We were going to talk about forgiveness, but we also have some questions, and I thought we might, maybe one of them will be on forgiveness. Yeah. So um, I can't remember how we're going to get the questions. Oh, there's one. How do we address the disconnection a lot of us are feeling coming out of the pandemic and reestablish connections safely? Well, that's a really beautiful question. Safety is just a huge issue for me because I was born an extremely anxious person. And I remember, you know, my friend Terry Ritchie, who's a very aged, brilliant Diocesan priest in L.A., says, we don't get over much here. And, uh, um, and I'm still a pretty anxious person. And so safety is very important to me. And one thing is you do get to protect yourself a little bit. And you get, like Sam said, when he was just a little boy, like under 10, he said, Mom, vibe is everything. <laughs> and I just love that. And I think it's true. And so I go a lot by vibe. And if somebody has a sweet vibe, I um, I move towards it. And I say what I was just saying about you. I say hello. And, um, and then you start jamming a little, what brings you here? Or how do you know Celia? Or whatever. And... Um, Coming out of the pandemic, which I'm not positive we are, but maybe ish, and in California, the mask mandate is being lifted, is that we have always had certain things that we know are are fulfilling and real and true and abiding and then there's the other bs and busyness and this the the a great acronym for fear is the frantic effort to appear recovered and you know and to be busy and to be you know fully evolved and 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 so we don't need to do those things that make us look so good our curated life our our curated facebook lives but instead we plop more and we 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 experiment with moving towards people in situations that always before have felt 
kind of absurd in a very sweet way. And so I moved towards what always worked before and what, against all odds, is probably going to keep working now. And I just add a little piece. That's beautiful, Annie. That the feeling of disconnection itself is an invitation to compassion. Mm -hmm. That here you are and you feel disconnected or you feel lonely, you know, and those are experiences that are all too human for us. Mm-hmm. And then we try to get rid of it or blame mm-hmm. ourselves or judge or whatever. Mm-hmm. What if you wrap your arms around as if you, you know, knew, knew some child, some little boy or little girl who was lonely or who felt, you know, disconnected? What would you do? You'd put your arm around them and say, here, here we are. We mm-hmm. are together. Mm-hmm. And you can actually do that in yourself. You can bring mm-hmm. your compassion and say, yes, this mm-hmm. is part of the human experience but it's not the reality. Mm-hmm. In fact, you hold it with tenderness in, and then you realize this. Anne says like the pseudopod, you can kind of stick your little pod out and see if there's anybody else and, 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 and open yourself to, to try to play with others and make it playful, mm-hmm. not serious, not try to fix it, but just, is there mm-hmm. anybody out there to play? Mm-hmm. And you'll find them. They mm-hmm. will be. You'll find them. Uh-huh. Um. So here's one. Um, I have recently lost my beloved dog. I keep forgetting she is no longer here, and when I remember, I grieve and feel such sadness. I wonder if you could speak out about loss and grief. The grief you feel is equal to the love you had. So that's the first thing. The depth of the grief is because you love so deeply, and that alone is worth honoring. And as you can see, dear one, grief comes in waves. You know, you grieve, and then you're in the market, you know, and you have to figure out, like, which kind of soap you're going to buy. Is it going to be Tide or will it be an Eco whatever or something? And, and all of a sudden you forget to grieve, and you realize it's gone, and then you put it in your cart, and, you're, and, and your heart speaks up and says, no, 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 there's this loss, and a new wave of grief comes. Mm-hmm. And that's just because you've loved so deeply. So that's the first thing. And then you, know, you say, my beloved dog, I keep forgetting she's no longer here. As you know, most of you, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, who we all loved a great deal and was so kind of refreshing in his presence and simplicity and care, he, he died or he passed away, whatever language you want, um, just recently in the last couple months. But he wrote and talked about it before he died. And he says, if people tell you I died, it's not true. I never died. He said, just like a cloud drops raindrops and turns into snowflakes and they enter the river and they enter the ocean again, the sun heats up the ocean and a new cloud comes. He said, how could I ever die? I'm a part of life. I am a part of you. Everything that you do has me in it, and everything I do has you in it. I am with you. And so when you remember your dog, there's the grief and the, you know, the loss because it was so special. And at the same time, he or she, she it is, I see, she actually is still with you. And wherever she is, she's probably wagging her tail saying, yeah, I'm, I'm with you in spirit. Mm-hmm. That's true. And... um In my experience, grief is a lazy Susan, and I wrote about that in Traveling Mercies after my best friend died, that um, 
it it spins and and one day and for quite a while it's very acute and it's hard to breathe or to find your center and um and then it spins again and you're in kind of shutdown you're numb and that actually feels really good briefly but numb never feels good for very long because it starts to argue a wasted life and then it spins again and you're just in the joy of your memories of them and in the in the gratitude that they had such a good passing, that they were free of pain and they were tended to so beautifully. And um, and then it spins again and it just feels that it was an unbearable loss and that you'll never get over it. And in a funny way, like my dog Ladybird passed a few months ago too and it just felt like, I felt like an anvil had dropped on me, and I cried and cried and cried and cried, and then I felt so sad, and, and the silence was so terrible, because I was used to her clickety-clackety nails on the hardwood floor, and her old lady snoring on the floor next to me when she slept, and and then little by little, I it was like life started to pull me back to my feet, and I started to feel less bitter about other people who had live dogs, and I wanted to pet their live dogs because because um, I love dogs so much. And so then, little by little, Neil and I started to be ready to to kind of audition or kind of just be available to say to the universe, um, could you please look through your Rolodex and find a really wonderful dog for us? And now we have a really a darling border collie um, with great Pyrenees mixed in named Mukti, which is Hindi for compassion. And, and uh, But it took a lot of grieving. When Sam was a, a boy at every step of the way, um, when our animals would die, we would I would commit to not getting a new one so that he, I wouldn't just get him to feel better about everything right away. I think grieving is how we grow and grieving is a crucible, but a lot of stuff that really was never true to begin with gets burnt off in the process. And um, the one last thing I want to add to that is that the culture tells you certain things about grief that are just not true, that there's a grid you know, if you lose a spouse, you can have 18 months, although the second six months are going to be a little bit of a buzzkill for the rest of us. And then a brother, sister, maybe six to seven months, um, something like that. And with a dog, really a month at the very most. And I am still sad about all my dogs and cats. And so it's really important to feel as terrible as you need to for as long as you need to it's exactly where you need to be but i think you'll experience it as a lazy susan and that the acuity does pass it it's not the new you question how can we live daily with injustice and still look out at the world with love oh boy well um Martin Luther King said, don't let them get you to hate them. And I wrote a whole piece about that a couple books ago. Don't let them get you to hate them because then you're doomed. Because then you don't, you can't be in your center anymore and you can't be in the, 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 the truth of your spiritual identity, which is that you are love. You're here for love, to love, and to be loved, to give your love. You're here as love in expression and if you're in hate and contempt, which I have been in a lot, and I was a few years ago, again, I'm not going to name names, 
And but what happened in recovery? People say the willingness comes from the pain, and I really believe that. And the willingness to look at my hate and contempt and judgment and my self righteous victimization, the pain got to be too much. It was Anais Nin saying that the pain of staying in that tight little bud finally got to her, and she chose to begin the process of blooming, which is often uncomfortable. And um, and so I did the work on my own hate. You know, I've heard if you've got a problem, go look in the mirror. And I've got I, I got in touch with my inner Donald Trump, and I got in touch with my narcissist and my the bombastic person who is convinced that she is right. I know you Buddhist types like to say, "Would you rather be right or would you rather be happy?" And I would rather You'd rather be right. I, I, I just <laughs> kind of am right. If I if, if my ideas were wrong, I believe I would have different ideas. But so I got to look at my own craziness, and then I got to ask God, "Could you could you enter this mess and just be with me in it?" And the the thing with God, because God doesn't have an app for not love, is that God loves me then, but I think grieves for me too. It is like that the the cheapest worst room in the house. And so I think God loves me in my contempt or my rejection of certain people because of their political values or their whatever. And um, I saw a bumper sticker in Texas once that said, God loves you exactly the way you are, and, and he loves you too much to let you stay like this. So once I was available to um, be somewhat healed of um, my own hate, um, it made it much, much easier for me to look out at the world. With love. I've also been so moved, especially since uh, Archbishop Tutu died not so long ago. And there's this film that's just come out and a book prior to it, The Book of Joy, in which he, in dialogue with the Dalai Lama, talk about how after all the suffering of apartheid and all the, you know, suffering in the community and for the Dalai Lama, all the pain that he's had to carry to be unable to go back to Tibet and to the loss of the culture and freedoms and yet they laugh together and they joy mm-hmm. and they tease each other mm-hmm. and you know one of them will say something you say wait you're supposed to be a holy man you can't stay that and they'll mm-hmm. you know grab each other's cheeks and and play and they were asked how can you be so joyful mm-hmm. and the Dalai Lama says so much has been taken from me. You know, they've taken my ability to go home. To They've taken our sacred text. Why should I let them take my happiness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then in some way, and I know it from being in a refugee camp, they don't want you if you're depressed. It actually doesn't help them. Somebody who has some sense of vision of what's possible, and it is possible in this world. Mm-hmm. Injustice is here, mm-hmm. but injustice is not the only measure of your attention. The measure of your attention is really love, Mm -hmm. that this is a glorious, amazing place with a tremendous, you know, incalculable beauty and an ocean of tears. Mm -hmm. And this is what you got yourself born into. And you, O nobly born, the Buddhist texts begin, remember who you really are, that you Mm -hmm. are, whether you call yourself a a divine being, a child of, you know, of, of the universe a Buddha in training, Mm -hmm. that you have that in you. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, you have the capacity to see the injustice of the world and also know that there's beauty and the capacity to make a difference. 
And that's mm-hmm. what will change it. It's not the injustice out there. It's that you can feel enabled and empowered to see it with compassion and care and then also reach your hand out so that you are a healer of misery or a messenger of wonder or an architect of peace, as mm-hmm. Diane Ackerman would say. Make mm-hmm. something beautiful mm-hmm. in, this, in this world and mm-hmm. that will change it. Mm-hmm. And then Mother Teresa said to the new recruits who came to Calcutta to work in the gutter, she said, find the joy here or go home. Yeah. You know, um, we have one more question and then you are going to do a three minute meditation. And I was going to close with a beautiful Islamic poem I found. But the last question is what gives you hope? What gives me hope is all the things we've talked about today. Love, presence, community, um, being of service, um, um, working out, taking stuff to the food pantry gives me hope. Um this guy that God helped Bill Wilson get A off the ground said, sometimes I think that heaven is just a new pair of glasses. And if I take off the hopeless glasses and I put on the hope glasses, you know, Emily Dickinson said, um, hope, goodness causes hope to reveal itself. And so I put on the glasses where I look for goodness and I look for gla- I, I bring the goodness. If I don't see much, I bring it. So then it's there. Yeah. I take hope in the simplest ways. Look out at the grass growing through the cracks in the sidewalk. Life wants to renew itself. Today, there were, I don't know how many million babies were born on this planet today. And they're born with with the child of the spirit in them. Life is renewing itself and it's what we are. Mm -hmm. And and it's completely trustworthy that Mm -hmm. we're going to do amazing things and difficult things and we'll mess up and screw Mm -hmm. up and we'll also triumph, as Helen Keller said, that yes, there is suffering and there's the overcoming of it. Uh So let's do a little meditation together Mm -hmm. for three minutes, if you Mm -hmm. would, and if you're driving, don't close your eyes, please. But just to tune in and take a couple of long breaths to... Ah, settle yourself here in the present. Ah, let the shoulders relax and let your body be more at ease, resting on this beautiful earth wherever you're seated. And then bring a loving awareness to your own body and to all that it's been carrying, all that's been on your shoulders and all that you've had to go through And your body will have areas of tightness and tension and struggle and also areas of aliveness and joy. And you feel this whole mysterious body that's been given to you with kindness and loving awareness. And then say to your body, I feel all that's in you. Thank you for carrying so much. Thank you just a compassion for this body. Thank you. I'm okay just now. Thank you for caring so much. You can relax. I'm okay just Mm. here. Mm. And now bring your attention to your heart and all the things that it's been carrying, disappointments and loneliness and fears, all of those things in anger and frustration, but it also carries longing and creativity and love and so many different emotions and feel all that your heart has carried, the tears, the ocean of tears and the grief. Mm. 
and the lightness and gift and humor. And you feel it all. And then with loving awareness, as you feel all of that, you say to your heart, thank you. Thank you for carrying Mm. so much. You hold it, you wrap it in compassion. Such a good heart. Thank you. Thank you for caring so much and for caring for me. I'm okay now. You can rest. You can relax. I'm okay just where I am in the present. And finally, bring your attention to your mind. All those thoughts, plans, and memories, and figuring things out, and ideas, and responses, and creativity, and difficulty, and all the stories it tells, and the images, and pictures, and words. Busy, busy, and you feel all the energy of that wheel of the mind. You hold it with compassion. It's really trying to help you. Mm-hmm. And you say, thank you, dear mind. Thank you for trying to keep me safe, which it's doing over time. Thank you for trying to keep me safe. I'm okay just now. Hold it with compassion. I'm actually okay. You can relax. I'm okay just where I am, just now. And as the mind relaxes... And the heart is easier and the body rests when you say, I'm okay just now in the present. With that gratitude, finally let yourself feel the space of loving awareness, which is who you are. You are awareness inhabiting this body, awareness and love. And rest in this, which is your true home. And you have a poem, man. Oh, so beautiful. This is by a young Iranian poem named Kaveh Akbar called How Prayer Works. Tucked away in our tiny bedroom, so near each other, the edge of my prayer rug covered the edge of his, my brother and I prayed. We were 18 and 11 maybe, or 19 and 12. He was back from college where he um, built his own computer and girls kissed him on the mouth. I was barely anything, just wanted to be left alone to read and watch The Simpsons. We prayed together as we had done thousands of times, rushing ablutions over the sink, laying our, I don't know how to say that word, um, John Amaze's out toward the window, facing the elm, which one summer held an actual crow's nest full of baby crows, fuzzy black-beaked fruit. They were miracles we did not think to treasure. My brother and I hurried through sloppy postures of praise, quiet as the light pooling around us. The room was so small, the twin bed took up nearly all of it, and as my brother, tall and endless, moved to kneel, his foot caught the coiled brass doorstop, which issued forth a loud wrong. The noise crashed around the room like a long, wet bullet shredding through porcelain. My brother hit back a, uh, bit back a smirk, and I tried to stifle a snort, but solemnity ignored our pleas. We erupted, laughter quaking out our faces into our bodies and through the floor. We were hopeless, laughing at our laughing, our glee and infinite rope fraying off in every direction. It is not that we forgot God or the martyrs or the prophet's holy word. Quite the opposite, in fact. We were boys built to love what was in front of our faces. My brother and I on the floor draped across each other. 
laughing tears into our prayer rugs. So thank you, everybody, for being here. And thank you, City Arts and Lectures, Holly and Kate. And thank you, Jack. Thank I you, love Annie. You. I love you, too, dear. <laughs> so great. Mm. Oh, thank thank you, you, everybody. Take care of yourself really well. Gently. Be safe, protected, tender, and strong. Yeah. Thanks. You've been listening to a conversation between Jack Cornfield and Anne Lamott. This program was recorded at Square One Studio in Fairfax, California, on February 15th, 2022. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate goldstein Breyer and Holly Mulder-Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin, Jordan White assists with production and communications. The post-production director is Nina Thorson. The Sydney Goldstein Theatre technical director, Stephen Eckerd. The recording engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sydney Goldstein. City Arts and Lectures programs are supported by Grants for the Arts of the San Francisco Hotel Tax Fund. Additional funding provided by... The Mimi and Peter Haas Fund, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and the Friends of City Arts and Lectures. Support for recording and post-production of City Arts and Lectures is provided by Robert Mailer Anderson and Nicola Miner. To attend a live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net. <laughs>